2: hospitalizations
3: are rising along with Delta variant infections. We're seeing a trend, not just the breakthrough cases, but in the younger age groups, which means that we do have to get that vaccination rate up again.
2: I'm Jade Hindman with Maureen Kavanaugh. This is KPBS Midday Edition. We asked public health experts about how they're keeping their kids safe from COVID.
4: We don't participate in indoor group activities at all with our children. For example, we don't even take them to the grocery store.
2: While children wait for a safe vaccine, we'll tell you about efforts to get zoo animals vaccinated, plus another installment of our summer music series. That's ahead on Midday Edition. COVID-19-related hospitalizations are steadily rising, both in San Diego and across the nation. The county has reported nearly 300 hospitalizations in the past 30 days, with unvaccinated individuals making up the bulk of those affected. As ICUs continue to fill up, health officials are urging increased preventative measures to limit the growing spread of the virus. Joining me now is Dr. Ghazala Sharif, Chief Medical Officer for Scripps Health. Dr. Sharif, welcome. Thank you. Thanks for having me. So the current number of hospitalizations is nowhere near its peak back in January, but it's still cause for concern. What will prevent us from getting back to those startling numbers we saw earlier? I mean, is the vaccination wall enough?
3: Yeah, right now, if you think about this, the incubation time period is from 2 to 14 days. So whoever's already been exposed has already been exposed, and, and those hospitalizations will continue for now. Unfortunately, what we can do is, yes, start the vaccination cycle again, let's get everybody vaccinated. But the biggest thing we can do right now is go back to masking, distancing, all the things we know worked before that we kind of let up on uh, with the state lifting the the requirements, but it's time to go back to that. Otherwise, we are today at Scripps Health, we have 122 patients in the hospital. At our peak in January, we had 500. And we are rapidly growing that number um, daily. And that's a startling trend for us.
2: Do you think we need to be moving in the direction of a lockdown again?
3: Yeah, I think, you know, it's going to be hard, to be honest, in a lockdown. They're, people are, we're tired. Everybody's tired of, of, of COVID and having a lockdown again. I would love to prevent that if we can. It was hard. It was hard on businesses. I felt truly for them as well. But we've got to do what we can now. And I really think that if we could just buckle in, do the mask, social distancing, you know, really try to limit. All the get-togethers you know everybody's going going out and going to parties I, i'm surprised how many people are still doing all of that right now remember that vaccinated people can still transmit the virus so that's the difference with this delta virus right it is highly highly contagious 50 percent more contagious than the original strain that's what it's a cause for concern so whether you're vaccinated or not you should still be wearing your mask right now and let's try and get our arms around this so we don't have to go back into the lockdown and all those things that we had to do before. These are the simple measures we know work.
2: And what are you doing to respond to this increase in hospitalizations at Scripps?
3: Yes, we're trying to be proactive. We learned some lessons. We we believe in learning from what we've done before. We've got our search tents back up again. Those are actually already in play. We are rebuilding our negative pressure rooms so that we are ready. Unfortunately, uh, if there is an influx, staffing uh, is an issue. Staffing is a, an issue across the region, not just at Scripps. And so we really do need the public's help in trying to get our arms around this. Otherwise, I am concerned that if we don't have the staffing, if the numbers keep going up, then we have to go back to what we did before with canceling procedures and surgeries. And that's really hard on people who have been waiting a long time to get those procedures done. I really do not want to go back to that level. But if these numbers keep going up and we have a staffing you know, imbalance, we may get to get that point again. And I really, again, don't want to do that. We have a lot of people waiting to you know, get their care. We don't want them to have to, to do this again. We've done this once, let's not do it again.
2: Are you seeing any hospitalizations from breakthrough cases?
3: Yes, we are. If you keep in mind, when Pfizer came out with their data, initially it was 94% effective. Now they're saying with, with the Delta variant, the vaccine is 88% effective which means that you're still going to get about 12% breakthrough rate and we're right at that number it's are sourcing anywhere between a 10% and a 17% breakthrough rate and that's on the fully vaccinated those patients uh, tend to be to be older and have more more underlying health illnesses as we would expect but overall length of stay and ICU admissions are much lower in the vaccinated. So I often get that question of well, why should I bother getting vaccinated then if I'm going to be in the hospital? Anyway, the answer is the severity of illness is less. And that's what we'd love to get everybody to that point. So even if you do need to be admitted, because you're a breakthrough, you're not going to have to stay in as long. And frankly, the death rate is lower if you're vaccinated.
2: Speaking of patients are the type of patients you're seeing hospitalized now different from the patients you were seeing during the winter surge?
3: We're seeing a lot of younger patients coming in before everybody said, oh, this is a, you know, this is just for, for the older patients. That's not the case. We have, we have somebody in-house who's 23, we have a 24, 25-year-old. These are unvaccinated. So we're seeing a trend, not just the breakthrough cases, but in the regular admissions, younger age groups, which really means that we do have to get that vaccination rate up again. Otherwise, we're going to keep doing this COVID cycle. More variants will come in. My concern is at some point, do we get to a variant that the vaccine is infected against at all? because we have not gotten to that herd immunity level yet.
2: How are our staffing issues affecting how this uh, current surge is being dealt with?
3: Right now, we are we're managing very effectively the, the the cases that are coming in. My concern is if we keep getting more and more of these cases. And remember, we right now are, are seeing regular volume that's the same as our winter volume. That's never seen in the summertime. Usually, there's a d- decrease in cases in the summertime. Now, we're we just having the influx of normal patients, you know, chest pain, shortness of breath, maybe because people delayed their care during COVID, now they're all coming to the emergency department. And then on top of that, we're seeing this. And so that that's the management piece. So if we 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 have to get to a point, we may have to go ask for the staffing waivers that we had from the state to help that out. But right now we're managing, but my concern is that we keep going this way, we are going to get back into that area where we had to cancel procedures and things like that. And if you think about this two days ago we only had five staffed intensive care unit beds left. So everybody had a nurse that was in house, but having only five ICU beds that are staffed is concerning, right? If we get a sudden influx of patients, you know, we're going to have to be creative about how we take care of people. And uh, we've done a great job with that before. But again, we don't want to get back to that level.
2: Right? I mean, the worry prior to vaccinations was that our hospitals uh, wouldn't have enough beds and equipment to care for patients. Is that a worry with the surge?
3: Right now we have the beds. We the staff is the issue, right? And frankly, we're not getting as many traveling agencies coming in. People, you know, I don't don't. We just don't have that staff to rely on either. There's a lot of people that are retired or decided they don't want to work anymore. That people are going on vacation, right? And so getting that staffing balance is difficult. So right now we have the beds. We have the equipment. It's the staffing piece, and so that's that's my concern because when we had 500 patients in January. You know, we were limiting surgeries. We, we had traveling nurses that were coming in. We just don't have that, that capability right now.
2: What have you been hearing from other area hospitals? Are they having similar experiences?
3: Yes, uh, the chief medical officers and I, uh, we keep in touch regularly. We meet on a regular basis. We have been since the start of this uh, COVID, you know, thing that we've been in for, for a year and a half now. And so I'm hearing the same, same concerns. Uh, Children's Hospital, let me know that they're getting uh, pediatric patients being admitted as well. We saw that at the height of COVID. Now we're seeing it early. So the younger age group is definitely being affected. All the emergency departments are very, very busy right now. So we're all seeing the same thing.
2: I've been speaking with Dr. Ghazala Sharif, Chief Medical Officer for Scripps Health. Dr. Sharif, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you.
5: The San Diego Zoo and Safari Park are moving quickly to vaccinate about 250 potentially vulnerable animals against COVID. The vaccination program is stepping up after more animals have tested positive, including five of the zoo's six Sumatran tigers and two snow leopards. It's not entirely clear how the animals caught the virus, but new masking requirements are now in place for all staff members. Zoo officials hope to complete the first round of vaccinations this week. Joining me to discuss this is San Diego Union-Tribune biotech reporter Jonathan Wosen. And Jonathan, welcome back. Thanks for having me. Now, is this a major outbreak of COVID in the zoo and safari park?
6: So it's not a major outbreak, but we've seen several recent examples over the past couple of weeks of animals testing positive at at both the zoo and safari park. So this week, the safari park announced that five of the six Sumatran tigers they have uh, have tested positive, and three of the five have fairly mild COVID symptoms, mostly coughing and the tigers seem a bit more lethargic than they usually are. Uh, last week, we know that the two snow leopards at the zoo uh, also tested positive for the virus, and symptoms were pretty mild, you know, there as well. Those snow leopards basically recovered, is what I'm told. So, Zoo and Safari Park have, I believe, in total, you know, upwards of twelve thousand animals from a you know, hundreds of different species. So we're not talking about major outbreaks, but we are talking about several recent examples of transmission, presumably from uh, staff members to some of the wildlife.
5: Do vets know which animals are susceptible to COVID and which aren't?
6: So I wouldn't say they know completely which animals are susceptible or not, but it is clear over the past year that different types of cats, different types of felines can get the coronavirus, Uh, I think primates, Uh, unsurprisingly, since they're very closely related to us, are also considered susceptible. And then there are other species which the zoo thinks to various degrees may also be susceptible. The list of animals they're trying to vaccinate spans everything from, as I mentioned, some primates, cats, uh, hyenas, I think otters were (laughs) on the list. So there's a whole lot of species that may have some degree of vulnerability, uh, but it's not clear exactly how much. How are these animals diagnosed? So they're diagnosed initially because keepers are keeping a close eye on them. And if they see, in the case of the tigers, they noticed that one of the, actually the youngest tiger in the safari park, wasn't eating as much as he usually does and wasn't as active as he usually is. So they did a stool sample. So as opposed to a swab up the nose or down the throat, they basically collect stool and do the same type of testing that you would do on people to detect the genetic material from the virus and so the zoo has an internal lab where they test those samples they send them out to a state lab to confirm that and then they send those results out to a national lab as well
5: has any zoo animal uh, become severely ill or died of COVID?
6: no uh yeah that that has not happened uh, so far and, and all these cases have been You know, fairly mild.
5: Now, the working theory is that the zoo staff has spread the virus to the animals. Is it common for coronaviruses to be transmissible
6: from humans to animals? It's not considered to be common, but it's definitely known or believed to happen. And it's probably not too surprising that we're seeing that happen now when you think about what's going on in terms of the surge of new Delta cases, Delta driven. Uh, cases here in San Diego where you know we're routinely seeing 700, 800, you know, 1,000 plus new cases of the coronavirus in the region. So it's probably not a coincidence that we're having a surge among people. And in some cases, uh, that, that seems to be crossing over to uh, animals. I mean, one, one little thing that's interesting is that the zoo is working with Scripps Research to do genetic sequencing on the viral samples that they're detecting in their wildlife Uh, So far, they only have results from the two snow leopards, which apparently didn't have the Delta variant. They had some other uh, strain of the virus. But uh, yeah, the working theory is that folks who are carrying the virus but don't have symptoms are are still transmitting it in a few cases to these animals.
5: And can the animals transmit the virus to each other?
6: That's not completely clear. But when I spoke with uh, Lisa Peterson, who's executive director of Safari Park that, that is what they think happened in the case of the tigers, for example, where five of the six uh, tigers tested positive. They think that uh, even though those tigers aren't kept in a sort of a shared open space, they are able to sniff each other through an enclosure or through a cage, essentially, and, and have a little bit of contact that way. So yes, the, the thinking is that the animals are spreading it to each other. That was one of the reasons why once the first couple gorillas tested positive back in January, uh, the, the safari park expected that eventually the rest of the troop would probably test positive as well. Uh, just because they have a lot of contact with each other there's no obviously no concept of social distancing and, and they tend to keep uh, these animals together uh, even when one or two of them test positive, they think it's still probably better for their health and, and safety to keep them in that uh, group unit. so so that's uh, definitely something that can happen.
5: How is the vaccination program working at the zoo? Well, first of all, what kind of vaccine are they using?
6: Yeah, so it's a little different of a vaccine from what any of us who are getting vaccinated may have gotten, but not so different. So this is a vaccine made by an animal health company called Zoetis. Actually, Zoetis used to be part of Pfizer, which is notable given that Pfizer is one of the main vaccine developers right now. It's a vaccine that delivers a little protein from the coronavirus, so it's not mRNA, it's not one of these other technologies, it's a little bit of protein from the virus that is injected, and that then sparks an immune response that can help prevent against future infection. So it's a two-dose vaccine. In this case, they're spaced uh, three weeks apart, so by the end of this week, we expect that uh, all of the animals that are susceptible or thought to be susceptible will have gotten that first dose, and then they'll start doing second doses in the following weeks.
5: And animals contracting COVID is sort of a brand new territory for research. And the zoo apparently is conducting studies on this while they're trying to stop it.
6: Yeah, they're in the early stages of it. But, uh, you know, they are, I think I mentioned a second ago, looking at the different variants that uh, the wildlife are getting. So they can perhaps get a sense of whether certain variants are more likely to crossover from presumably from people to a certain species. So they're doing that in collaboration with Scripps Research. Uh, And and I know they are going to be paying attention to, you know, looking at things like antibody responses and other types of immune responses um, as the animals get regular uh, health checkups throughout the year. So it's all uncharted territory in the same way that learning about human immunity to COVID has been uncharted. Uh, And and that, that is one of the interesting things to, you know, follow up with them and see what they learn and and what that means for, you know, future outbreaks and and how they respond to those.
5: I've been speaking with San Diego Union-Tribune reporter Jonathan Wozen. Jonathan, thank you so much.
6: You're welcome. Anytime.
0: Hi, I'm Bill Hohen. And I'm Ted Hohen. We value the relationships with our
1: clients and look forward to serving you for years to come we invite you to visit one of the hohen carlsbad dealerships or hohenmotors.com
2: as the more contagious delta variant continues to circulate causing more infections even in kids many parents are anxious about how to best protect their children especially since there's no vaccine available for those under 12. The rules about what is and isn't safe vary from one activity to another. So we decided to ask experts in public health how they're keeping their own children safe. Here's what they had to say.
7: I'm uh, Rebecca Fielding Miller, and I'm an assistant professor at UC San Diego's um, Herbert Wertheim School of Public Health and Human Longevity Science. So I have one daughter. She's Three. She'll be four next month. We were actually lucky enough to be in um, what's called the open label part of the trial. So we know that she got the actual vaccine because she's in the part where they're trying out different um, doses to see how kids react. So we know she got the real vaccine and, and we know how much, which is really exciting.
4: Hi, I'm Corinne McDaniels-Davidson. I'm the director of the San Diego State University Institute for Public Health. I'm an epidemiologist and I have three children. Uh, almost eight-year-old, a four-year-old, and a one-and-a-half-year-old. My children are not able to be vaccinated yet. They are uh, signed up for clinical trials, but we haven't gotten the call yet.
8: Christian Ramers, uh, MD, MPH. I am an infectious disease specialist and chief of population health at Family Health Centers of San Diego. I have a 16-year-old boy and a 13-year-old girl. Both of my kids are fully vaccinated. With
2: school starting back for many students, the first thing we asked was if they feel safe about sending their children back to school or daycare.
7: When everything closed down, um, we had to find a new childcare site, like a lot of people last March. And one of my highest priorities was finding a place with really good ventilation. So we actually chose a daycare that at the time was entirely outdoors. The kids are always outside. Um, And it's very small, there's about 10 families and the parents all have really good communication. Um, Now the parents are all vaccinated and we all cheered one another on as we all got our vaccines.
8: My daughter has actually been in a a public charter school, a middle school, and they've been mostly online and are just moving into sort of hybrid type situation. And yes, we are gonna be sending her. Uh, And again, a lot of it is behavior. Um, She is very, very attuned, you know, having, seen all of the interviews that I've done and, and uh, you know we talk a lot at home about how to keep yourself safe um, and she's very interested in, in going back to school in person and we will be wearing a mask as well.
4: It was a tough decision figuring out uh, whether we should send our kids back to school and daycare. Ultimately we needed child care for the younger two in order to continue working. Luckily our uh, place of child care is at the SDSU Children's Center and there precautions that they have taken went far and above and beyond what was recommended, and I felt really comfortable with the decision to send them there with the ventilation, the outside time, the masking, the contact tracing. So the younger two have been in in daycare since last fall. My oldest, the soon to be eight year old, we did not send her back to school last spring. Um, we decided to keep her remote and finish the year that way. She will go back in the fall. She'll be at a small school with small class sizes and uh, strong masking and ventilation.
2: So how comfortable are they with their children participating in group activities and playing outside?
7: I still I choose things that are very low risk as much as I can manage things that are outdoors. But really, we're not doing any other group activities besides childcare and a, an outside music class where everybody's six feet away from everybody else. And I, I'm personally not comfortable with anything besides that at the moment.
8: In terms of group activities, it's a little trickier. Um, I'll give you an example. This weekend, we had a, a couple of families get together and we really had to reach out to all the parents and communicate about vaccination status. All the families and kids that were eligible were vaccinated, but there were some below age 12 and we had to do testing uh, to know that it was really safe to be together. And then those kids that were less than age 12 actually wore masks indoors. So it takes a lot of management, um, a lot of discussion uh, about how to mitigate your risk and how to decrease your risk. And we tried to spend as much time outdoors as possible.
4: We feel comfortable playing at the playground if there are very few other children and we try to go at non-peak times. We do ask our children to mask if there are other children present. Um, Even if they're a little bit far away, we just like to model that behavior and whoever is with them, be it their father or I, we also mask so that that they have some solidarity there. Other outdoor activities we're pretty careful about. We, you know, we'll go outside and play catch with the neighbors and things like that, but nothing that's um, in too close of proximity.
2: And finally, we wanted to know if there is any difference in how these experts approach this pandemic as parents versus professionals.
8: I've had friends and family that have died from COVID. Um, So I take it seriously as a provider and I take it even more seriously uh, as a way
4: to protect my family. I try not to speed time, but I so wish my children were over the age of 12 so they couldn't be vaccinated right now. I think that especially going back to school, Um, And having a lot of children congregated all together, it would be ideal for all children age 12 and up to be vaccinated. A lot of people think that kids aren't affected by COVID and they absolutely are. We know that about 2% of kids who get COVID will require hospitalization. That seems really small until you consider that here in California, we have 9 million children. And once you take 2% of that, that's quite high. We also know one in every 3,200 about will will get Miss C. And that's also not something that we want to mess around with. And we just don't know the long-term impacts of COVID. We see a lot of post-viral illness, and I'm not comfortable with my kids being exposed to that. And we know that the vaccines are absolutely
7: safe in those 12 and older. I'm, I'm in public health and public health is really about how do we, um keep everybody safe, treat everybody well, and make sure that everybody has the opportunity to be as healthy as possible. And I want every child to have the same opportunity to be healthy and safe and protected, just like I want that for my daughter. So there's no advice that I would give for somebody else that isn't what I would do for my kid.
2: That was Rebecca Fielding Miller, an assistant professor at UC San Diego's School of Public Health, Dr. Christian Ramers, an infectious disease specialist and chief of population health at family health centers in San Diego, and Corianne McDaniels-Davidson, director of San Diego State University's Institute for Public Health. Many thanks to all of them for their
5: work and insight. Pandemic lockdowns and school closures have emphasized many inequities in our cities, but the changes made Tuesday to the San Diego Parks Master Plan may help solve one glaring example. The City Council approved the first overhaul of the plan in 65 years with an emphasis on serving neighborhoods that have been underserved by park development in the past. Joining me is KPBS Metro reporter Andrew Bowen. Andrew, welcome. Hi, Maureen. Now, the claim is that adequate park development has bypassed some lower-income communities in San Diego over the years. Why would that be the case?
9: Much of the funding for parks in the city of San Diego comes from impact fees uh, that are paid by developers when they build new housing. The result was that newer neighborhoods, north of Interstate 8 mostly, got 80% of the park fees in the city over the past decade. And the older neighborhoods, mostly south of Interstate 8, uh, that have less vacant land, uh, that are more fully developed and uh, haven't seen as much uh, new development over the past uh, decade, basically got shortchanged. So even if they have a higher population density, even if they face other systemic inequities, uh, they still got less money under the status quo.
5: And apparently, at least one city council member pointed to the pandemic lockdowns for making the lack of parks and open space in some communities something that everybody could see.
9: Yeah, Vivian Moreno, the council member for District 8, uh, which includes Barrio Logan, uh, Logan Heights, San Isidro, said in the meeting that park deficiency is really visible in her neighborhood. You see kids playing soccer on basketball courts or on parking lots and, uh, you know, uh, seniors not having a safe space to walk and exercise, and during the stay-at-home orders, when everyone was cooped up inside, the need to be outside and get fresh air and just feel like you're not trapped in in your home was all the more urgent, and the inequities of the status quo were just even more obvious uh, in those underserved communities.
5: So how does the new Parks Master Plan change the funding mechanism for Parks?
9: Well, for one, it creates a uniform park development impact fee for uh, uh, development across the city. So it's more consistent and more predictable for developers, um, whereas previously they might be paying different fees depending on where they're building. And a portion of the fee will stay in that community, but a a greater portion of it will be put into a citywide park fund, and 50% of uh, the money in that fund would be dedicated to uh, improving parks or getting new parks in Communities of concern these are historically disadvantaged and underserved communities and the city has a very data driven method of defining what is a community of concern. Uh, in addition to that, there's another 30% of the funds that would be reserved for uh, park deficient communities. So in those communities where there just isn't enough park space uh, at all, um, they would also get a, a, a pot a sort of a set aside in this uh, citywide park fund.
5: And how many parks is the city hoping to develop?
9: The city doesn't have a goal for the number of new parks, but it does have a. It did set a goal this week of 100 more acres of park land over the next 10 years. And part of the update this week was expanding what the definition of park is. So, uh, a new park that counts toward those 100 acres might look. A little different than the more traditional park that takes up a full block, or you know, it's got grass and a playground, etc. It could be a linear park. So you know, you might decide we can shrink the size of this roadway uh, and then just put in a line of trees and benches and other amenities that that make a sort of a long and skinny park. Um, it could be a mini park, so like a public plaza, similar to the um, Piazza della Famiglia in, in Little Italy. Uh, they could also just be setting up amen- amenities on a vacant lot. Um, this is the, what the city calls placemaking.
5: Now, Council Member Chris Cade uh, was the one member on the council that did not vote for the new master plan. He says the new funding method is unfair to his constituents. Why is that?
9: Well, whenever you make a change to the funding structure, there's typically uh, winners and losers. And so Councilmember Kate kind of saw his district as uh, coming out on the short end of this. Um, His district includes Kearney Mesa and Mira Mesa, and both of those neighborhoods are Slated for a pretty substantial increases in housing and density over the next several years. They've, um, Kearney Mesa already had a community plan update, and Mira Mesa's community plan update is um, underway. And so he said he just couldn't get past this idea that those neighborhoods might see all of this extra growth and, and new residents and everything, but because they're not. Uh, communities of concern, you know, historically underfunded and underserved communities, they won't get this extra boost in park funding um, under the new system. If they are deemed park deficient, which I would imagine Kearney Mesa is, it's not a very residential neighborhood, so it doesn't have a lot of park space now, they would still be eligible for the 30% of the citywide uh, park fee money. Um, But he just kind of felt like, uh, you know, his constituents would come out on the losing end of the new system
5: and Andrew will there be further changes to the parks plan or is this all set to go into effect
9: well, it's set to go into effect, but the city does plan on uh, monitoring the implementation pretty closely. They want to ensure that it's accomplishing the goals that it actually set out to do, and it's also planning on uh, creating a, a park prioritization list. So we understand that you know all of these formulas that the new that the city has created, um, which parks and which neighborhoods are actually going to be um, slated for getting improvements and and uh, more park funding uh, under the new system.
5: I've been speaking with KPBS Metro reporter, Andrew Bowen. Andrew, thank you.
9: My pleasure, Maureen.
5: There's a major effort underway in the U.S. to shut down the multi-billion dollar trade in exotic animals such as lions, tigers, and leopards. Some of these big cats wind up in sanctuaries, like one right here in San Diego County. KPBS reporter John Carroll takes us there.
10: Set among the rolling hills of San Diego County's backcountry, just a few miles outside of Alpine, a menagerie, 93 acres of sanctuary, and a name, lions tigers and bears a home for rescued animals
11: it's an exotic animal trade suck into drugs and weapons and human trafficking in our country uh, these animals are used abused and bred for nothing more than profit nola Come
10: on, nola bobby brink is the founder and director of lions tigers and bears home to dozens of animals not just the ones in the title Bobcats, goats, a llama, along with some horses and birds live here, too. It is accredited by the American Sanctuary Association, and that's important.
11: The true sanctuary rescues provides a lifetime home, does not breed, sell, or trade animals.
10: Videographer Mike Damron and I were here last Thursday, International Tiger Day.
6: At least 10,000 tigers are kept in captivity
10: as pets. People begin their time here watching a video, explaining how the animals they're about to see got here. But this being International Tiger Day, there was something special. Treats hidden in cardboard creations, raw meat for NOLA and mocha. It costs either $43 or $46 for adults depending on the day, and $26 for children for a day's visit. The 15,000 yearly visitors help pay the bills.
11: It's about $15,000 a year to feed just one cat. And then our, of course our biggest expenses are building these vast habitats, insurance, pumping the water, electricity. Uh, Keeper, keeper salary, all these animals got to have someone to take care of them daily, so yeah, it's not cheap.
10: About two million dollars a year to take care of 65 animals. So while visitors help with daily expenses.
11: We do survive on donations.
10: Donations that help pay for big costs, like the rehabilitation of the animals. A lot of them are in bad shape when they arrive. The life these bears lived before getting here is stomach-turning.
11: Baloo behind me is a perfect example of what we call pit bears. So they're literally in cinder block pits where the bears can't see out, kept in breeding pairs, and then when the babies are born, they pull the babies about eight days, six, eight days um, from the mama. They take them up top where the mama can hear and smell them but can't see them for people to get their picture taken.
10: Do you still get angry at your fellow human beings?
11: I have to control my temper a lot because you can't lose your temper or we lose. And we want to get the animals out of there and sometimes this can take like years five six years to get animals out of just disgusting places
10: bobby brink began her professional career as a flight attendant in 1990 but she soon realized that wasn't for her next she became a restaurateur but eventually she and her husband's life paths led them here they opened this place in 2002. she says nowadays Her most rewarding moments come from visitors who arrive not knowing anything about the exotic animal trade but leave educated and motivated to do something about it someday brink hopes there won't be a need for places like lions tigers and bears
11: that is a sanctuary's job is to try to be putting sanctuaries out of business
10: but until that day arrives brink her staff and her volunteers will continue to expand this special place by building more habitats And by doing the daily work of making life as good as it can be for these animals who have suffered so much. John Carroll, KPBS News.
5: The high-energy folk band Finnegan Blue blends rock, bluegrass, Celtic music, and New Orleans second-line jazz for a truly unique sound, headed by brother and sister musicians Anna Lee and Willie Fleming. Finnegan Blue combines strong vocals, driving rhythms that make for exciting live performances. And while some of their songs sound like they've been passed down through the ages, all their music is original. Finnegan Blue joins us today. Let's begin with their tune, Come Follow Me.
12: I've ever seen The rise shining brighter Than the stars on midnight The hair runs wild As the wind runs free run yeah. run through the woods So green with trees swim down a river turtle, it's free I don't know where the hell We'll end up Take my hand and follow me yeah.
5: Joining me are Anna Lee Fleming, who plays guitar, trombone, and also provides vocals, and Willie Fleming, who plays mandolin, trombone, and vocals. Welcome to you both. Thank you for being here.
13: Hi. Hi. Thank you for having us.
5: <laughs> now, you've got a whole stage full of musicians in this band. So who else is in Finnegan Blue?
13: Yes, we also have um, our dad, Bill Fleming, is the electric guitar player. We have Oscar Beckman on the bass. We have Kevin Higuchi on the drums and Malcolm Jones on saxophone.
5: You know, you guys have an incredible range of musical influences, of songs. How did you both learn music? Let me start with you, Annalie.
13: Yeah, so that that question definitely jogged a memory. And that was that when I was younger, when I was maybe in second grade, I told my parents I wanted a Game Boy. And for Christmas, I got a guitar. It was kind of like, what is this? You know? (laughs) (laughs) But, uh, you know, looking back, that's where it all started. I got a guitar. They, They knew that music would be something that we should try and could be interested in. And of course, we just took off from there. My dad gave me guitar lessons. Uh, middle school through high school and anytime we're around. He's still giving me lessons all the time. Um, And then I picked up the trombone later in, in college, actually, so it's never too late to learn a new instrument.
12: Yeah, we were super lucky to have musical parents. Definitely the Irish music started with hearing my dad play in the Irish pubs with those trad groups. So those tunes really stuck with us. My mom is an amazing singer. She's very, very soulful. So we have that type of influence. My dad also rips blues guitar really well. So there's your your blues and your Irish. And then in in high school, yeah, we joined the marching band. So now we have these other instruments, trombones, the music that felt like it fit the best was just sort of what, what we also ended up gravitating towards, which was, uh, yeah, the second line style, New Orleans style.
5: Well, uh, Anna, tell us about the song Elegy.
13: Yes, Elegy, um, I wrote in 2010 after my grandmother had passed, but a couple of our members had lost significant people in in their lives. So each verse is about that particular person, um, including Lily here, lost a friend that year. And so Elegy was, um, I would say, the first song that I was really proud of, and we started to form a the the group around that a long time ago and then and then when rye whiskey when i wrote that one that's when the the band was officially uh, solidified
5: well here's another selection from the incredibly versatile band finnegan blue it's called elegy
10: it's been two years
12: since i
5: That was Elegy by Finnegan Blue. Now, Annalie, you mentioned your dad is part of the band. Is that how you both got into music in the first place?
13: Yes. um, Both of our parents are musicians. In fact, on Elegy, uh, my mom is also singing some backup vocals, and my Uncle John is playing the piano. It was important for us to have, uh, to pull in all the family resources, just as some roots on the album, Uh, but yeah, my, our parents were musicians. They, they toured the country when they were younger than us and they fostered that throughout our childhood and, and now we, we play music as well.
5: And Annalie, do you remember how old you were when you first jumped up on that stage to perform with them?
13: Gosh, that's a great question. There's, there's pictures of me before I remember. I (laughs) must have been three years old. I think when I could stand is when they let me get on
3: stage.
5: They say that there's nothing like sibling harmonies. Do you find that to be the case with you two?
12: Yeah, we call them blood harmonies. When you lock in to a harmony, especially with a family member, it it almost hurts your ears. It's like, (laughs) yeah, you know, the, the vocal cords are built the same way. So they just make this vibration in the air that's like, whoa, really rattles your head.
5: Now, you're known. For getting your audience up on their feet and dancing, being a great live band. Willie, what is that energy like when the house starts to rock?
12: Yeah, we try to play music and, and take take the listener on a journey. And then we get to have a nice exchange of energy. When we're really pouring it out on stage, if there is no one dancing, it's okay. But you really feel it bounce back when when you're able to get the, get the audience dancing and moving. Uh, the energy's reciprocated and then all of a sudden you're just in this little cycle of, of awesome energy in the room. So we like to keep that going as much as possible.
5: Well, I want to thank you so much for joining us. It's been such fun listening to this music. I've been speaking with Anna Lee and Willie Fleming of Finnegan Blue. Thank you both.
13: Thank you so much. Thank you're you, Maureen. Lo- so lucky to be on uh, talking with you today.
5: Go to kpbs.org slash summer music series for the full interview and for a video interview of Finnegan Blue. Tune in next week for the next installment of the summer music series featuring the down-tempo sounds of Ocean Beach dub collective, Boostive.